Section 12 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1E, Section 12, Chapter 52, Part 4. Certain zealots had erected themselves into a society for buying in of impropriations and transferring them to the church, and great sums of money had been bequeathed to the society for these purposes. But it was soon observed that the only use which they made of their funds was to establish lecturers in all the considerable churches, men who, without being subjected to episcopal authority, employed themselves entirely in preaching and spreading the fire of Puritanism. Laud took care, by a decree which was passed in the court of Exchequer, and which was much complained of, to abolish this society and to stop their progress. It was, however, still observed that throughout England the lecturers were all of them puritanically affected, and from them the clergymen, who contented themselves with reading prayers and homilies to the people, commonly received the reproachful appellation of dumb dogs. The Puritans restrained in England shipped themselves off for America, and laid there the foundations of a government which possessed all the liberty, both civil and religious, of which they found themselves bereaved in their native country. But their enemies, unwilling that they should anywhere enjoy ease and contentment, and dreading perhaps the dangerous consequences of so disaffected a colony, prevailed on the king to issue a proclamation debarring those devotees access even into those inhospitable deserts. Eight ships lying in the Thames and ready to sail were detained by order of the council, and in these were embarked Sir Arthur Hazelrig, John Hamden, John Pym, and Oliver Cromwell, who had resolved forever to abandon their native country and fly to the other extremity of the globe, where they might enjoy lectures and discourses of any length or form which pleased them. The king had afterwards full leisure to repent this exercise of his authority. The Bishop of Norwich, by rigorously insisting on uniformity, had banished many industrious tradesmen from that city and chased them into Holland. The Dutch began to be more intent on commerce than on orthodoxy, and thought that the knowledge of useful arts and obedience to the laws formed a good citizen. Though attended with errors in subjects where it is not allowable for human nature to expect any positive truth or certainty. Complaints about this time were made that the petition of right was in some instances violated and that upon a commitment by the king and council, bail or releasement had been refused to Jennings, Pargeter, and Danvers. 
Williams, Bishop of Lincoln, a man of spirit and learning, a popular prelate who had been Lord Keeper, was fined ten thousand pounds by the Star Chamber, committed to the Tower during the King's pleasure, and suspended from his office. This severe sentence was founded on frivolous pretenses, and was more ascribed to Laud's vengeance than to any guilt of the bishop. Laud, however, had owed his first promotion to the good offices of that prelate with King James, but so implacable was the haughty primate that he raised up a new prosecution against Williams on the strangest pretense imaginable. In order to levy the fine above mentioned, some officers had been sent to seize all the furniture and books of his episcopal palace of Lincoln, and in rummaging the house they found in a corner some neglected letters, which had been thrown by as useless. These letters were written by one Osbaldistone, a schoolmaster, and were directed to Williams. Mention was there made of, quote, a little great man, and in another passage the same person was denominated, quote, a little urchin. By inferences and constructions these epithets were applied to Laud, and on no better foundation was Williams tried anew, as having received scandalous letters, and not discovering that private correspondence. For this offence another fine of eight thousand pounds was levied on him. Obaldstone was likewise brought to trial, and condemned to pay a fine of five thousand pounds, and have his ears nailed to the pillory before his own school. He saved himself by flight, and left a note in his study wherein he said that he was gone beyond Canterbury. These prosecutions of Williams seem to have been the most iniquitous measure pursued by the court during the time that the use of parliaments was suspended. Williams had been indebted for all his fortune to the favor of James, but having quarrelled first with Buckingham, then with Laud, he threw himself into the country party, and with great firmness and vigor opposed all the measures of the king. A creature of the court to become its obstinate enemy, a bishop to countenance Puritans, these circumstances excited indignation, and engaged the ministers in those severe measures, not to mention what some writers relate, that before the sentence was pronounced against him, Williams was offered a pardon upon his submission, which he refused to make. The court was apt to think that so refractory a spirit must by any expedient be broken and subdued. In a former trial which Williams underwent, for these were not the first, there was mentioned in court a story which, as it discovers the genius of parties, may be worth relating. Sir John Lamb, urging him to prosecute the Puritans, the prelate asked what sort of people these same Puritans were. Sir John replied, quote, that to the world they seemed to be such as would not swear, whore, or be drunk. Out they would lie, cozen, and deceive, that they would frequently hear two sermons a day, and repeat them, too, and that sometimes they would fast all day long. This character must be conceived to be satirical, 
yet it may be allowed that that sect was more averse to such irregularities as proceeded from the excess of gaiety and pleasure than to those enormities of which are the most destructive of society the former were opposite to the very genius and spirit of their religion the latter were only a transgression of its precepts and it was not difficult for a gloomy enthusiast to convince himself that a strict observance of the one would atone for any violation of the other in sixteen thirty two the treasurer portland had insisted with the vintners that they should submit a tax of a penny a quart upon all the wine which they retailed but they rejected the demand in order to punish them a decree suddenly without much inquiry for examination passed in the star chamber prohibiting them to sell or dress victuals in their houses two years after they were questioned for the breach of this decree and in order to avoid punishment they agreed to lend the king six thousand pounds being threatened during the subsequent years with fines and prosecutions they at last compounded the matter and submitted to pay half of that duty which was at first demanded of them it required little foresight to perceive that the king's right of issuing proclamations must if prosecuted draw on a power of taxation lilburn was accused before the star chamber of publishing and dispersing seditious pamphlets he was ordered to be examined but refused to take the oath usual in that court that he would answer interrogatories even though they might lead him to accuse himself for this contempt as it was interpreted he was condemned to be whipped pilloried and imprisoned while he was whipped at the cart and stood on the pillory he harangued the populace and declaimed violently against the tyranny of the bishops from his pockets also he scattered pamphlets said to be seditious because they attacked the hierarchy the star chamber which was sitting at that very time ordered him immediately to be gagged he ceased not however though both gagged and pilloried to stamp with his foot and gesticulate in order to show the people that if he had it in his power he would still harangue them this behavior gave fresh provocation to the star chamber and they condemned him to be imprisoned in a dungeon and to be loaded with irons it was found difficult to break the spirits of men who place both their honor and their conscience in suffering the jealousy of the church appeared in another instance less tragical arky the king's fool who by his office had the privilege of jesting on his master and the whole court happened unluckily to try his wit upon laud who was too sacred a person to be played with news having arrived from scotland of the first commotions excited by the liturgy arky seeing the primate pass by called to him who's fool now my lord for this offence arky was ordered by sentence of the council to have his coat pulled over his head and to be dismissed the king's service here is another instance of that rigorous subjection in which all men were held by laud some young gentlemen of lincoln's inn heated by their cups having drunk confusion to the archbishop 
were at his instigation cited before the star chamber they applied to the earl of dorset for protection who bears witness against you said dorset one of the drawers they said where did he stand when you were supposed to drink to this health subjoined the earl he was at the door they replied going out of the room tush cried he the drawer must be mistaken you drank confusion to the archbishop of canterbury's enemies and the fellow was gone before you pronounced the last word this hint supplied the young gentleman with a new method of defence and being advised by dorset to behave with great humility and great submission to the primate the modesty of their carriage the ingenuity of their apology with the patronage of that noble lord saved them from any severer punishment than a reproof and admonition with which they were dismissed this year john hamden acquired by his spirit and courage universal popularity throughout the nation and has merited great renown with posterity for the bold stand which he made in defence of the laws and liberties of his country after the imposing of ship money charles in order to discourage all opposition had proposed this question to the judges whether in a case of necessity for the defence of the kingdom he might not impose this taxation and whether he were not sole judge of the necessity these guardians of the law and liberty replied with great complacence quote, that in a case of necessity he might impose that taxation and that he was sole judge of the necessity hamden had been rated at twenty shillings for an estate which he possessed in the county of buckingham yet notwithstanding this declared opinion of the judges notwithstanding the great power and sometimes rigorous maxims of the crown notwithstanding the small prospect of relief from parliament he resolved rather than tamely submit to so illegal an imposition to stand a legal prosecution and expose himself to all the indignation of the court the case was argued during twelve days in the exchequer chamber before all the judges of england and the nation regarded with the utmost anxiety every circumstance of this celebrated trial the event was easily foreseen but the principles and reasonings and behavior of the parties engaged in the trial were much canvassed and inquired into and nothing could equal the favor paid to the one side except the hatred which attended the other it was urged by hamden's counsel and by his partisans in the nation that the plea of necessity was in vain introduced into a trial of law since it was the nature of necessity to abolish all law and by irresistible violence to dissolve all the weaker and more artificial ties of human society not only the prince in cases of extreme distress is exempted from the ordinary rules of administration all orders of men are then levelled and any individual may consult the public safety by any expedient which his situation enables him to employ but to produce so violent an effect and so hazardous to every community an ordinary danger or difficulty is not sufficient much less a necessity which is merely fictitious and pretended 
where the peril is urgent and extreme it will be palpable to every member of society and though all ancient rules of government are in that case abrogated men will readily of themselves submit to that irregular authority which is exerted for their preservation but what is there in common between such suppositions and the present condition of the nation england enjoys a profound peace with all her neighbors and what is more all her neighbors are engaged in furious and bloody wars among themselves and by their mutual enmities further ensure their tranquillity the very writs themselves which are issued for the levying of ship money contradict the supposition of necessity and pretend only that the seas are infested with pirates a slight and temporary inconvenience which may well await a legal supply from parliament the writs likewise allow several months for equipping the ships which proves a very calm and deliberate species of necessity and one that admits of delay much beyond the forty days requisite for summoning that assembly it is strange too that an extreme necessity which is always apparent and usually comes to a sudden crisis should now have continued without interruption for near four years and should have remained during so long a time invisible to the whole kingdom and as to the pretension that the king is sole judge of the necessity what is this but to subject all the privileges of the nation to his arbitrary will and pleasure to expect that the public will be convinced by such reasoning must aggravate the general indignation by adding to violence against men's persons and their property so cruel a mockery of their understanding in vain are precepts of ancient writs produced these writs when examined are only found to require the seaports sometimes at their own charge sometimes at the charge of the counties to send their ships for the defence of the nation even the prerogative which empowered the crown to issue such writs is abolished and its exercise almost entirely discontinued from the time of edward the third and all the authority which remained or was afterwards exercised was to press ships into the public service to be paid for by the public how wide are these precedents from a power of obliging the people at their own charge to build new ships to victual and pay them for the public nay to furnish money to the crown for that purpose what security either against the further extension of this claim or against diverting to other purposes the public money so levied the plea of necessity would warrant any other taxation as well as that of ship money wherever any difficulty should occur the administration instead of endeavouring to elude or overcome it by gentle and prudent measures will instantly represent it as a reason for infringing all ancient laws and institutions and if such maxims and such practices prevail what has become of national liberty what authority is left to the great charter to the statutes and to the very petition of right which in the present reign had been so solemnly enacted by the concurrence of the whole legislature the defenceless condition of the kingdom while unprovided with the navy the inability of the king from his established revenues with the utmost care and frugality to equip and maintain one 
the impossibility of obtaining on reasonable terms any voluntary supplies from parliament all these are reasons of state not topics of law if these reasons appear to the king so urgent as to dispense with the legal rules of government let him enforce his edicts by his court of star chamber the proper instrument of irregular and absolute power not prostitute the character of his judges by a decree which is not and cannot possibly be legal by this means the boundaries at least will be kept more distinct between ordinary law and extraordinary exertions of prerogative and men will know that the national constitution is only suspended during a present and difficult emergence but has not undergone a total and fundamental alteration notwithstanding these reasons the prejudiced judges four excepted gave sentence in favor of the crown hamden however obtained by the trial the end for which he had so generously sacrificed his safety and his quiet the people were roused from their lethargy and became sensible of the danger to which their liberties were exposed these national questions were canvassed in every company and the more they were examined the more evidently did it appear to many that liberty was totally subverted and an unusual and arbitrary authority exercised over the kingdom slavish principles they said concur with illegal practices ecclesiastical tyranny gives aid to civil usurpation iniquitous taxes are supported by arbitrary punishments and all the privileges of the nation transmitted through so many ages secured by so many laws and purchased by the blood of so many heroes and patriots now lie prostrate at the feet of the monarch what though public peace and national industry increased the commerce and opulence of the kingdom this advantage was temporary and due alone not to any encouragement given by the crown but to the spirit of the english the remains of their ancient freedom what though the personal character of the king amidst all his misguided counsels might merit indulgence or even praise he was but one man and the privileges of the people the inheritance of millions were too valuable to be sacrificed to his prejudices and mistakes such or more severe were the sentiments promoted by a great party in the nation no excuse on the king's part or alleviation how reasonable soever could be hearkened to or admitted and to redress these grievances a parliament was impatiently longed for or any other incident however calamitous that might secure the people against these oppressions which they felt or the greater ills which they apprehended from the combined encroachments of church and state end of section twelve chapter fifty two part four recording by kevin davidson www.blogordie.com